Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Somebody once wrote, hell is the impossibility of reason. That's what this place feels like. Hell. That's right, listeners. We are discussing with spoilers aplenty the 1986 Vietnam drama Platoon from Orion Pictures, starring Charlie Sheen, Willem Dafoe, and Tom Berenger. Directed by Oliver Stone, this movie is rated R with a running time of two hours. Platoon was nominated for eight Oscars, winning four for Best Film Editing, Best Sound, Best Director, and Best Picture. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Writer-director Oliver Stone, who wrote the intense screenplay for Midnight Express and wrote and directed the highly acclaimed Salvador, has created a personal and searing testament to the men who fought the war in Vietnam. Drawn from Stone's own experience in combat, Platoon relives the fear, the heat, the jungle, the hatreds, and the horrors that was daily life for young grunts in Southeast Asia. Seen through the eyes of college dropout Chris Taylor, Charlie Sheen, the war is a real nightmare, a private hell of fears from outside and in, with enemies on both sides of the line. His platoon's allegiance is split between leaders Sergeant Barnes and Sergeant Elias, portrayed by Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe in their powerful Oscar-nominated performances. Barnes is a scar-faced, gung-ho fanatic bent on destroying the elusive Viet Cong. Elias is a different type of soldier. He has lost faith in the war, but not in man. Friction between the two sergeants leads to a second war, in every way as deadly as the one being waged against the enemy. Feel the power of Platoon a gripping, emotional film about a war we might not want to remember, but must never forget. Platoon. Platoon. So that was what's on the box. Jason, how are we doing? Pretty good, man. This one is is a little bit tough. There is an emotional component to it. Even reading the what's on the box segment, I kind of feel it, man. This is a heavy film. Are, are we ready to tackle this? Yeah, this is a big time drama for us that we'll be discussing. But yeah, I'm ready to get into it. So let's move on to our earliest memories. What are our earliest memories of Platoon? Jason, start us off. All right, I will, Bill Bant. I did not see this film in the theater, but afterward on cable or VHS. And I have to say that this is most likely the first entire film I saw about the subject of war but more directly and specifically about the Vietnam War. Now, I did have some reference and a framework knowledge of that war because my father was a pilot in Vietnam, flying the C-130 Hercules, also known as the Herkybird, which was used as a troop and supply carrier flying tactical airlift missions and also combat missions. As a pilot, my father certainly saw his fair share of action and would relate the stories to me over time as I've grown and continues to tell them to this day. Of course, being young at the time of this film's release, I cannot say I had anything close to resembling an understanding of the Vietnam War, nor any war, and definitely had no comprehension of what our soldiers endured during those wars. I have never served in the armed forces myself, and can say without a doubt I still have no understanding of war, and am partially grateful for that. My only frame of reference and or knowledge has been the stories from veterans such as my dad, what I've read in history books, and then, of course, movies. I cannot and will not speak to whether or not this film 
accurately captured the Vietnam War experience from a soldier's perspective. And we do know that this is a movie and many aspects are dramatized and are fictionalized for the medium. I just wanted to make that clear from the start. I cannot relate to the film on a personal level, but I can tell you how it makes me feel and how I can only imagine the circumstances of war and how I appreciate how the film was crafted from a filmmaker's perspective. As far as early memories go, I remember the three main protagonists, Sheen, Berenger, and Defoe. Sheen is the young, new arrival, the new recruit, and Berenger and Defoe is the seasoned veterans and sergeants in this film. Sheen had this naivete. Berenger was ferocious and intimidating. He certainly left his mark on me as a young man, and Defoe had a gentle soul. But I, I remember that wet, hot jungle in this movie, the darkness, the fear portrayed, and the sudden and graphic violence and pain. I do recall some of the familiar faces as the cast is loaded, but more just the sadness that the story portrays with the amount of loss and the loss of innocence, as mentioned in the tagline. The look on Charlie Sheen's face at the end as he's fist pumping and waving goodbye to a fellow soldier before being lifted away on a helo. But most of all, to no surprise, I always remember Willem Dafoe's iconic death scene and the musical score that accompanies it. The famous Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber. I cannot hear that song and not make the association to this film. They forever go hand in hand, especially, of course, the moment the song escalates into a crescendo and Defoe falls to his knees with his arms raised to the heavens. It is the poster image. It is the lasting frozen image in my mind. So my earliest memory overall is that this movie's story is immensely impactful on an emotional level, leaving a bittersweet and sour feeling. That much I can say for sure. What are your earliest memories of this motion picture, Bill Bant? I just know when Platoon first came out, uh, you couldn't put on any kind of entertainment show at the time. And this is all they were talking about. I had no idea who Oliver Stone was. I certainly did after this point. And we have discussed Oliver Stone in the past, you know, one of the writers for Conan the Barbarian. And he's done many other things before and since. So that was definitely my intro to Oliver Stone. To me, this movie opened up our generation to the brutality of war, because at that point, I had not seen Apocalypse Now. I had not seen The Deer Hunter. Most of the movies that we were watching at the time that dealt with the Vietnam War were kind of your Rambo hero, go in, kill all the bad guys, and to see something like this, seeing like an actual depiction of war, because even other movies that you had seen about war, the other wars, there was something that never... Not that it didn't resonate, but you didn't really feel the effects of what the soldiers were going through. And this is really the first time I had seen on film something that captured this. I didn't see it in the theater. I remember kids in school talking about it, but I don't even know if they saw it either. It was just everywhere at that time when it came out and then gets the Oscar nominations, went Best Picture. And then this was, as soon as this was available for rental, I was there at the video store getting a copy and I remember taking it home and, and watching it while eating dinner. Yeah, I mean, the most memorable scene is William Defoe's death scene. And I know I was tearing when that was happening. It got you. Like, that was definitely one of those scenes watching it now is wondering, like, am I going to start crying when the scene comes up? I was, I was a little worried about that. Yeah. But I'll be honest, watching it this time, it almost had that feel of a horror movie to me because it's been a while since I saw it. And then every time you just see them, the platoons walking through the jungle, I'm just like, oh, my God, someone's going to hit a, a mine or there's going to be a, a Vietnamese sniper and it's going to shoot one of them. I could remember the overall, but not the specifics. 
So I, I was almost in terror watching it this time again, but I still think it's very impactful. It's definitely a movie I go back to every time since then about wars, um, even wars that's going on now, or I'm like, oh my God, this is what these people have to go through day after day after day. I don't know how they handle it. And I think this movie makes you understand a lot of what soldiers go through and what they come back with. It's terrifying that we go through this, that people go through this in order to protect our freedom. I would say it's definitely a a must watch. That's my earliest memories. And yes, it's interesting as we always talk about our perspective as young people watching these films versus as adults. And as a young person, this film had that effect of shock and awe versus now having the benefit or maybe not so much benefit of experience. We are somewhat desensitized to certain things. However, that impending doom, that sense of impending doom in the film and that sense of terror, I completely agree is what I felt as well, as if there was always death lurking around the corner. And it's almost like a nail-biting viewing experience watching it now, because with experience as adults, one of the unfortunate side effects that comes along with experience is fear. We have a lot, we just, we know too much and we have a lot of fear. At least I know I do. So yeah, it was interesting watching with an adult perspective today. I haven't watched it in some time. So yeah, it brought up a lot of feelings, but uh, we can get into a little more of that in our initial thoughts, if you're ready. Yeah, go for it. All right. You had mentioned our director of Platoon, whom is Oliver Stone, three-time Oscar winner, writer-director. He had directed a couple of shorts and a few lesser-known features outside of Salvador before directing Platoon, for which he did win Best Director, as Bill Band mentioned. Uh, He had written the screenplay for Midnight Express, won the Oscar for that, was a writer on Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, and Eight Million Ways to Die, but he is also best known for being the director of Wall Street Talk Radio, born on the 4th of July, which he also won Best Director for, The Doors, JFK, Natural Born Killers, and Any Given Sunday. He often makes cameos in his own films, and in this film, he does play the role of Alpha Company Major in Bunker. He is uncredited. Oliver Stone is still with us and working today at the age of 76. And here's a shout out to the loaded cast I had mentioned earlier. We have Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, Keith David, hell yeah, Forrest Whitaker, Kevin Dillon, John C. McGinley, and Johnny Depp, just to name a few. Here's an initial thought. The first image of the film is a (laughs) C-130, the very, very aircraft that my father flew in Vietnam. That is uh, the opening scene of the C-130 taking a turn around the corner uh, after having just landed and Right from the get, man, the opening scene is impactful. We get those images. We hear the adagio of the strings in the background, a portion of that song in the background. As the new recruits are stepping off the back of the plane, and the first thing they see are the body bags coming the other way. And then we see the veterans, and they're walking behind those body bags. And so we have a crossing of paths. It's the new and the old. It's the recruits coming in as the veterans uh, and the wounded are leaving. And it's tough right from the start. I mean, we see young Charlie Sheen as he looks into the eyes of a veteran who is beaten and battered. And a look is worth a thousand words. And I will talk about that a little bit later. Then we get into, you know, when we get into kind of the uh, 
the jungle. Now our new recruits are part of the platoon and they're in the jungle and it's the border of Cambodia and we're already feeling the heat and the ants on the back of the neck and the sweat and the weight of the gear. It's just all these sensory things that are happening while you're watching this film and you hear Lieutenant Wolf, I believe it is, uh, say, what's the delay on point? You have compass trouble again? Yeah. How the F would they know where the hell they were going? Because welcome to the jungle for Chris Taylor, that being Charlie Sheen, uh, the new recruit. And because you're immediately you're thrown into this jungle and you're just like, how are these people, these young men, where how would they know they were, where they were going? And yes, it's just by compass. But if they lose the compass, then you're screwed. Uh, we get that character establishment in this scene of our three protagonists right away. We understand that. Chris Taylor is having trouble as the newbie. We get Sergeant Barnes. God damn, man. Tom Berenger saying right off the bat, you are one simple son of a bitch to Chris Taylor. And then you have Elias, Willem Dafoe, saying to Chris Taylor, trying to help him, I'll haul your gear for you, but next time you check it with me. You know, and you're just like, okay, established right away. Barnes is the hard ass. Elias is the compassionate one. Elias Taylor is inexperienced. So this film probably introduced me to the army vernacular, the ranks, the positions, clicks, mics, the slang terms for the North Vietnamese soldiers. Right away, here's I love this scene right after uh, that initial scene in the jungle when we're introduced to our main protagonists. After Sergeant Barnes gives out the orders for the night ambush, we learn that he's not even the one in charge. He's only a sergeant and Lieutenant Wolf is actually in charge. But there's just certain people who take command. And I found that impactful in this scene, seeing that that look in Barnes's eyes that makes me actually think of Cole Hauser today. Cole Hauser is like today's Tom Berenger. So there's so much going on in Berenger's eyes in this film, and he just totally commands. His performance is commanding every time he steps on screen. You get an idea of who these soldiers, aka grunts, are from Chris Taylor or Charlie Sheen's narration in the film. We know exactly who is out there fighting for us at home. These are kids, a lot of them, except for our more experienced veterans and, and sergeants in this film. And they're from towns you've never heard of. And it's interesting because he kind of explains in the narration why they're called grunts. And they're the ones out there putting their lives on the line for us. And it just kind of hits home in, in that narration. Man, here's an initial thought. I love John C. McGinley. Man, that guy cracks me up. Such a wonderful character actor. It's not that he's that actually that funny in this film. He does bring some levity at times. Uh, there's a scene in particular where he's playing poker with the uh, the guys in the platoon, and, and he says this line. I mean, sometimes I just look at a guy, and I know this fellow's not going to make it. And then Sergeant Barnes just gives him that exact look. Like, yeah, McGinley, you're the one that's not going to make it. Uh, McGinley's often used in Oliver Stone's films. He's been in six of his films. Here's an initial thought. That whole village scene when they go into the village and end up burning it down, there's a lot that happens in that. And it made me uncomfortable. So uncomfortable that I actually looked away at one point. I was not expecting that upon this watch as an adult. Tom Berenger does have top billing in this film. I, I had not remembered that. It is for good reason. For me, upon this rewatch, he is most definitely the star of this movie, at least in my humble opinion. The fact that there is a terror element to this, a feeling of dread watching this, 
And it made me think of Robert Shaw's performance in monologue from Jaws when Shaw talks about the worst moment being when the helicopters show up and just moments before they're rescued out of the ocean. And that's the scariest moment when the sharks have been attacking just before they're about to be taken out of the water. Because it, and it seems like for these soldiers in this film that they're dealing with that very moment all the time, meaning there's a hidden enemy in an unknown territory and it, they could strike at any time and death is literally around the corner at any moment. It's full of fear. I forget that Kevin Dillon has a pretty substantial role in this film. I'll just leave it at that. I just always forget that. Kevin Dillon, man, from The Blob. Yeah, he's a bastard. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's a total prick. He's an obnoxious, violent prick in this movie. He's almost unhinged, but solid performance for a very young Kevin Dillon. Initial thoughts, the chaos of war, especially this particular war, Vietnam War, uh, there's such profound confusion and sadness and loss. These characters are forced to question everything from the obvious, like why are they there? Who are they fighting? Who is the real enemy? To the inner and outer politics and philosophies and morality and their loss of sense of self and place in the universe, not to mention the immense fear of death and primal instinct to survive and the fact that they're going to be changed forever, no matter what. And that leads me to the fact that there are unquestionably a lot of great quotes from this film, but it's really about the looks in between. So many different looks that tell the story. It's a real credit to all the actors in this film. I give Sheen a lot of credit because you truly see his arc through his looks on his face from when he gets off that C-130 in the beginning to when he's completely disillusioned in his conversation with King, a.k.a. Keith David. He has such a look of emptiness and a blank stare. It's really impactful. And then when he's completely transformed into this fighting machine in the final firefight sequence, just completely enraged, it's about his journey between looks. And then there's Barnes' looks, which say everything, a hardened soul that's seen too much. And then there's Willem Dafoe's eyes that convey compassion and trying to save any last bit of humanity. It's all in the looks. I appreciate the story. It's like three stories in one, the story of the Vietnam War, the smaller story of the Civil War between the platoon, namely Barnes and Elias, and then the story of Chris Taylor, of course, and his battle within himself. It all makes for a compelling movie. Those are my initial thoughts. What say you, my friend? Yeah, I think what I found fascinating about this movie, two things was one, you know, you go back through history and some people refer to this as a war. Some people refer to it as a conflict. I'm not going to say or nay either one what it is. And, you know, technically we lost. And you look about how in a way it's almost history repeating itself because when you look at the Revolutionary War when we were fighting the British it was the British did a certain way of how they did battles. You know, you do your two lines, you show your guns, blah, blah, blah. And then the you know American Revolution is like, yeah, we're not lining up against you guys and trying to shoot. We're going to try something different. You're on our land. We know where to hide. We're going to ambush at certain times. Very unconventional stuff. And now it's flipped. Now, here we are trying to stop communism. And we're on other people's land who know it like the back of their hand. It's not like you could train to be in the jungle. There's no jungle in the United States. So here you have all these poor soldiers who are just dropped off and saying, hey, you're going to go here, you're going to go there. They have no idea how to deal with the terrain or even, like I said, ants, snakes, all that kind of stuff. Like You really experience that in this movie. And I think, like I said, watching it the second time, it felt like more of a horror movie because you kind of knew what to expect. Whereas when the first time I watched it, because I'd never seen a movie like this before. Yeah, we know that they lose, but 
like the brutality of it, just the the fact that the platoon itself does not get along. Can you really name another war movie where the platoon has been so divided like that? It happens, but not to this degree where soldiers are actually killing among themselves when they're supposed to be killing another enemy. Charlie Seen Taylor says, not only were we fighting the Vietnamese, we we're fighting ourselves. Yep. So I think in that way, it was just so impactful watching this and not seeing something like this and not really seeing a war movie depicted like this again until I would say Save in Private Ryan. I mean, that opening 20 minutes mm-hmm. is crazy also. But, you know, I got to give it to Oliver Stone that he was able to, to put this together and put this on screen to really educate us because, you know, when these soldiers came back, people are mad at them that they went over there to serve. And these small towns you never heard of and people who are just trying to struggle to get by and some of them got drafted because they had nowhere else to go. And now they come back and we just spit on them some more. So that really sucks. And you just even think about today how society is. And I don't know. I just saw a lot of parallels about what's happening today, even what's happening in, in this war, how we just don't treat people well. We just, why, why can we not just freaking get along? God damn it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just scary, too, because you're talking about the village scene and all that happens in that. And they do terrible things to those people in the village. But unfortunately, you see why that happened. Not that I condone what they did, but you understand why. Because just trying to walk 10 feet in a jungle is so goddamn scary because you don't know what's rigged out there, what they have trapped. They have tunnels all over the place. So frightening. Sleeping under leaves, in the rain, having leeches attach themselves, or fire ants biting the crap out of you, exhausted. You're losing your mind. You see it even happen to Taylor twice. He, he literally, like, loses his mind. And he's only been there a third of the time most of the other platoon has been there. The mental toil it would take on these soldiers to do this, and half of them don't even believe that they should be over there. And then the other half... Right relish in the fact that they're over there that they get to kill people and that's frightening too give a gun drop you in the jungle go kill awesome love it there's so many scary elements in this film it's very eye-opening and then the fact that you can get someone that could put this together and depict it on screen and make you feel make you feel what they what all these people went through to going out there is amazing stuff this is a movie that would almost question should we really do this? Should we really fight these other people? There's no winners. At the end, there is no winners. And this movie really shows that. Again, well said. I remember as a young person just being confused by the fact that uh, these young men had been thrown into someone else's backyard and were expected to win. And you're right. There are no winners. There's only losers here. But that just put the fear in me trying to put myself in their shoes, which of course I could not Still, it was confusing as to think we would have any sort of advantage just going in, like thinking, well, just as Elias puts it at one point in the film when he's talking to Chris Taylor saying that we're just used to kicking everybody's ass. We've just kicked so much ass for so long. It's about time we get our own asses kicked. And it's basically as kind of simple as that. We just went in there thinking we had the prowess. And big mistake. But that just sense of fear of, yeah, that there's just even the terrain, like you mentioned, is an enemy unto itself. And to even just taking the politics out of it, and I'm glad you did touch upon that. I just, you can look into the history of how the war even came about or conflict or however you may 
perceive it, but these human beings are in it. There is such a loss of humanity. And what leads up to the occurrence within that village or occurrences, yes, it's inexcusable, yet you understand how it happened. Because again, men filled with fear and then complete rage as a result of such utter violence that's committed against one another because they see one of their platoon, I believe the character's name was Manny, violently killed and propped up on display. And that just incites a lot of anger that comes from so much fear. And there has to be an outlet. There has to be an outlet for it. And unfortunately, the village is the outlet of their anger and uh, rage. But uh, it's just the brutality of war. But yes, again, the fact that this film just makes you feel so many different things and it does have its critics. Let's not make any mistake. Uh, This film has been criticized for being a bit melodramatic, but I think Oliver Stone did a good job of, you know, because maybe certain scenes don't quite play out that way in the midst of the heat of battle in a war, but he has to portray the feeling of some way, and you have to do that. And, and it's a movie, right? So you've got to let the audience in or make the audience feel certain things by shooting a certain way or editing a certain way uh, with the addition of music as well. So this movie is really successful in the emotional impact. So this film certainly does not glorify war. Quite the opposite. Yeah. All right, so this takes us to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Platoon? Well, this is kind of difficult because it's hard to say these are like favorite scenes right. when some of them are just plain difficult to to watch. Uh, speaking of, like, I, I'll just say I considered putting the village scene in one of my favorite scenes, but I just couldn't bring myself to do I it. I couldn't either. I may end up talking a little bit more about it later, but uh, my first favorite scene is what I call the first firefight. And Taylor's been recruited for this night ambush squad with Sergeant Barnes. So it's in the middle of the night and Chris Taylor has the watch and he's armed with this Claymore detonator, which he has been instructed to use. He's been told to release the safety, then press it three times. If he sees the Viet Cong approaching at a certain distance, that'll set off the explosive. And so there he is intensely watching the, the fog and the jungle in the distance, trying to make out any VC that might be approaching. And he keeps looking at his watch and his watch is steamed up. And you, again, it's like it's rainy. You feel the humidity and they're just hunkered down and somewhat camouflaged. And finally, Taylor finishes his shift and he turns it over to Junior. And Junior takes over just momentarily before he falls asleep on his shift. But then... Taylor himself wakes up and staring into the distance and he hears just the crack of one branch. And then we know, and it's, it's well edited and well shot as you know, there's a close up on Taylor's eyes and he sees the VC approaching in the jungle. And then Chris Taylor freezes. He doesn't grab the detonator. He just freezes and won't move. And he's, we just see as the VC gets closer and closer, walking right up almost on top of Taylor. And then someone else immediately sets off the Claymore explosives and a firefight ensues between the platoon and the VC. We see a soldier who has lost a limb and he's screaming out, but Sergeant Barnes grabs him and covers his mouth and tells him to shut up and take the pain. Just take it, take the pain. And he does. And then another new recruit, I believe named Gardner, he's killed in the action. Taylor himself is nicked by a bullet in the neck 
And then Sergeant Bards just afterward, just, you know, he lets the squad have it after the skirmish dies down. He just says, remember what it looks like. You fuck up in a firefight, I goddamn guarantee you a trip out of the bush in a body bag. And the next son of a bitch I catch copping Z's in the bush, I'm personally going to take an interest in seeing them suffer. I shit you not. It's just Barnes taking command. And then Taylor's trying to say, look, Sergeant, I did not fall asleep on my shift. It was junior, but then immediately the other platoon members come up to him and they're like, no excuses, man. And that's the whole thing. It's just there's no excuses for any of it. Everybody's got to be on point. This scene just initially provides that sense of terror and also just insanity and chaos as soon as the firefight begins because you don't know, you can't tell which way is up. For example, here's a case in point. I've seen this movie several times, so I know what's coming. I know that Taylor is about to see the VC approaching in the distance in the jungle. I'm like cring- like like squinting my eyes, looking through the fog in the distance, waiting to see the VC soldier approaching. And it gets me every time, Bill. I don't, it's like, I don't even see him. He's standing right there. The enemy is camouflaged in the bush because he's wearing branches that are in his, ha- the hat that he's wearing, the, and he just moves ever so slightly to, to the left. And you're like, oh my God, he was standing right there. And that's how freaking scary this shit is, man, is that the enemy is, this is their backyard. They live here. They know how to camouflage themselves and they can be right in front of you and you'd never know it and you're dead. And that's scary as hell. So this scene immediately, and then people are having appendages blown off, people die, but you just see Taylor freeze. And I'm like, oh, yeah, heck, hell yeah, you would. It's just yeah, immensely scary and impactful. So that scene, I believe occurs about 20 minutes in. You're like, if the rest of the movie is like this, I'm going to have a heart attack. But it gives you a sense right away of the real horror of war. Right. And what makes it scary, too, is Taylor's maybe been with this platoon for a week now. And you're, right. you're put in such a position. And if I put myself in that situation, too, it's, okay, I did my watch. I just happened to wake up. The guy who's supposed to be on watch fell asleep. And now I see the enemy approaching. What am I supposed to do? If I open my mouth, I'm giving us away. If I move, I'm possibly right. giving us away. What the hell are you supposed to do? And then he takes all the blame for it. And then, yeah, poor Gardner whipped out the picture earlier. So, you know, he's, he's, yeah, a, he's a brand man. new recruit. Yeah. Don't ever show the picture. That's right. a death sentence. It doesn't matter what kind of movie it is. If you whip out a picture of your loved one who's far away, even, even in this movie. It's like it's like being a red shirt in Star yes. Trek. Yes. Like, oh, you're wearing the red shirt. That was a mistake. And I'm glad you also, you brought up something here. The fact that Taylor is new. Gardner, who gets killed, he was new. And the fact that before this night ambush, there's a difference of opinion as to who should be going on this ambush. And that difference of opinion is between Barnes and Elias. And you start to see, you know, we know that they're different men from a couple of moments early in the film. Their character establishment is clear. But Elias does not want to bring these new recruits on this ambush. They're just too new. And Barnes disagrees. And then after the firefight and Gardner is killed, we see Elias walk right by Barnes and say he might be alive if he had a few more days to learn something. And you're like, okay, we have some differing philosophies here. And you see a division growing between these two sergeants, Barnes and Elias. So this scene is important in establishing that as well. And it's just brutal because they talk about in early is the fact that new they say that 
it's better for the new recruits to be on these missions to, you know, die quicker because then they won't suffer as much from knowing all of the fears of war. Better a quick death than lasting a year long tour, two years or three years yep. and dealing with it for that long. For my first favorite scene, you touched on it a little bit. It's the opening. We meet Taylor for the first time. He's dropped off there in Nam and I think watching the movie, knowing what's going to happen, I think this is what made this scene a little bit scarier because you have these nice, clean-cut, baby-faced soldiers coming off the back of this aircraft, and the first thing they see is a bunch of body bags that are dropping off live bodies, picking up dead bodies, and you're like, holy shit. The reality of where you're at hits you right away. And then you see some of the soldiers walking by, and one of them shouts out, New meat. You dude's going to love the nom. And another one yells out for fucking ever. Wow. They don't even give a shit you're here. And it's almost they hate the fact that you're here because it just reminds them that they are there and they're going to be staying there if they keep sending people over. So I thought it was very impactful. It's like you don't get it the first time you watch it. But after you see everything they go through, that opening scene is I found to be very impactful this time because you're like... Oh man, you have no idea what you guys are in for. And even even with the warm welcome, you still have no idea what you guys are in for. So I thought it was a pretty good opening scene. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's a it's an outstanding way to open this film. It's smart filmmaking and the look on the one soldier who you can see the blood still on his face and he's just in tatters staring at Taylor as they walk by one another. That's what you have to look forward to. That's the journey that Taylor goes on. When I talk about a journey between looks, this innocent wide-eyed boy that stepped off a plane now sees what he's about to become in that look of just utter disillusionment, loss, sense of self, humanity, and obviously innocence. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow. Well, this is it in a nutshell, I guess, huh? Great opening scene. So, my next favorite scene is the obvious, and I'm sure you had this as well, Bill Bant. It is Sergeant Elias's iconic death scene, and this is it. As mentioned earlier, this is the image on the poster. This is what I immediately go to. This is the Im image that pops up in my head immediately as soon as I think of the name Platoon, as I th you know think of this movie. This is the go-to scene as far as just emotional weight that this film carries and always has. So in this particular scene, I'm just going to take it back a little bit to the point where we have our platoon uh, humping it, as they would say, through the jungle. And it's interesting too, I was re-watching this scene actually and, and uh, working out these notes a little bit. And the actual choice of camera angles and shots as we see both Lerner and Warren on point walking into a clearing, it's kind of a long shot, a little bit of a wide shot. And immediately, you'd mentioned, of course, already, Bill, about the terror aspect. You just know something bad is going to happen. You know, a camera angle is used, especially, like you said, like in horror films, like this is almost like a horror movie. Yep. It's like, oh, shit, something bad's about to happen. You just know if you've seen enough of these films, when there's a camera angle that's used in particular, you're like, oh, this means something's going to jump out. They're leaving a lot of room for something to happen within the frame. 
And sure enough, the platoon is ambushed by the VC. There's a supremely intense firefight, both Warren and Lerner on point. They both go down. The infantry is pinned down and it's complete chaos. This is one of those things, again, uh, the chaos of war, where it's just explosion and gunfire and RPGs and uh, screaming, just incessant screaming. Sergeant Elias manages to form a plan to get around the VC. He knows their tactics. He mentions that he had seen something similar from a few years earlier. And that's one of the things that hit home with me in this is the fact that not only do the VC have tactics because, of course, they're fighting in their own backyard. They do understand the jungle, but they seem to have a bead on where the platoons has been the whole time. They just have an understanding of the jungle. This is their home. And so they have maps, they have ways of just knowing where the platoon is and where their bunkers are, et cetera, where their location is. So it's no wonder they're being ambushed. It's just really scary. Regardless, Elias takes two soldiers with him and they go off into the bush, but then he tells them to stay put as he goes on a solo mission down to the river in case the VC flanks the platoon. Meanwhile, our guy, Charlie Sheen, Chris Taylor, is doing some valiant shit of his own as he's getting Lerner back behind the line. He goes up in the midst of the firefight and uh, he gets the downed Lerner back. He's pulling Lerner back. He's pulling Warren back. And meanwhile, our young Lieutenant Wolf, played by Mark Moses, by the way, very recognizable face. He's great in this. He's calling in an airstrike, but gives like bad coordinates and all held is breaking loose. When you think it's not chaotic enough, I mean, now we've got like large shelling happening, uh, just shell explosions as this airstrike results in a friendly fire incident, basically is killing some of the soldiers and Barnes. There's this great shot of Barnes who's just storming through the scene. He's just walking through the scene as if it's just not affecting him. He's just like that obviously a veteran of this war at this point, but still, he's just a complete badass. And he goes right over to Lieutenant Wolf and starts bitching him out and saying, what kind of quarters did you give them? You know, this is your fault. You know that, right? Our guys are getting killed because of what you're doing. And he gets on the horn and is like, check your fire, check your fire. Then tells Lieutenant Wolf and everybody else to pull back to the church get the hell out of there. And immediately Lieutenant Wolf is like, well, what about Elias? He's out there by himself. And Barnes immediately says, I'll go get him. So at this point, we have Taylor who's pulling back the wounded soldiers. And we've got Barnes now who's going after Elias. So we then cut to Elias in this great sound design as well, where things now have become eerily quiet. And Elias is on this rogue mission. And he himself becomes this one-man killing machine and takes out several of the VC soldiers and lets out one of those war cries amidst this, amidst his killing run, which is just, again, it's that pure adrenaline that just flows through these soldiers in the moment. And he's just flying through the jungle, taking out the VC. And then it gets really quiet as Elias stops and he comes upon a small clearing. And about 50 feet in front of him, he sees none other than Sergeant Barnes. And Barnes is there. And Elias thinks, oh, putting their differences aside in the moment, Elias smiles and thinks, here's a friend. But then Barnes gives a look back to him and he just has this dead-eyed stare right at Elias. And we know that Barnes has an opportunity here. If he can take out Elias, then there is no potential court-martial for Barnes. So it's almost like 
uh, uh, one of those quick draws from the old West. You see the close-ups of the eyes and you see Elias as he realizes Barnes is going to take this opportunity to take him out. And there's a quick thing. I, I've watched this a couple times and it seems as though Elias kind of leans to the left as he almost tries to avoid it, but he can't as Barnes just shoots him like three times in the upper body and we see Elias fall. And then Barnes returns where the initial location was of the firefight. And this is where we have Taylor crossing paths with him and says, you know, where's Elias? Where's Elias? And Barnes says, he's dead. He's dead. The VC got him. He's dead. We have to fall back to the church. And then we do see the platoon fall back to the church. They're carrying their wounded up onto the choppers and they all get onto these choppers to get the hell out of there. And they start flying away when someone calls out and they look down and they see Elias, he's still alive, and he's being chased by a dozen, at least a dozen, of the VC soldiers. And you're just seeing this magnificent wide shot of this open clearing and Elias running. And this is where, this time upon this rewatch, I got emotional instead of the actual moment that is the iconic image that I'll get to momentarily, of course. But it's watching Willem Dafoe's performance as he is stumbling and falling and being riddled with bullets as he's trying to run away. And he's reaching out. He's just bloodied and beaten and he keeps falling down, but he keeps trying to get up. And it's just his struggle and the struggle on his face. And of course, Dafoe's performance is just amazing. And it just tugs at your heartstrings as hard as you can imagine. And then, you know, and we're seeing Taylor up up on one of the choppers watching this whole thing happen as well as the other soldiers. And now some of these other choppers are, are gunships and they're trying to take out the VC that are chasing Elias across this clearing. And they do manage to take some out, but not enough of them. And finally, Elias falls to his knees and throws his arms up into the air towards the heavens. And it's a triple shot. We get the one, the, the one shot of him from the front of him falling to his knees and raising his arms. And then a shot from below is looking up as a chopper flies right over him. And then the third shot of him falling to the ground and dying. And it's absolutely brutal. It's absolutely gut-wrenching. And then it cuts away to Taylor on the chopper as he looks right over to Barnes. And he knows that Barnes, Barnes who just moments earlier had said, oh no, Elias is dead. He's dead. Well, no, clearly he wasn't, but he was injured and most likely at the hands of Barnes and Taylor knows this. And the looks again, Bill Bant, this is where I come back to these looks again, the looks on their faces because that accusatory look from Taylor, but then we get this look on Barnes's face as if I wouldn't go as far as to say is that he was feeling remorse in the moment, but again, it's kind of a dead eye stare, but there is a sadness in his look. It's a credit to Behringer, man. There's so much going on in his eyes and his face. And of course, I just want to mention this too, is the entire time, you know, we know that Barnes, he has this, uh, he has a massive scar on his face, which adds to kind of um, a bit of darkness within his look throughout and it adds to his character. But man, that look on Behringer's face when he, he knows that there's somewhere inside of him that knows that Elias was a worthy soldier and that he went down fighting and that he was the one that took him out. But he still, I'm no doubt, feels justified in his action 
and taking out Elias before he was actually killed. So it's an emotional scene. It's an impactful scene. It's I'll just keep saying iconic. This is the scene. What would you like to add to that? Well, yeah, of course, I had this scene in my favorites. And thanks for breaking that down, walking us through it. I think I remember watching it the first time when you see Barnes and Elias square off and just being shocked that Barnes kills his own member of his platoon. I'd never seen anything happen like that before. Usually you see the good guy shoot the bad guy. The bad guy is going to shoot the good guy, not two people on the same team shooting each other. So super shocking. And then you are thinking he's dead. We're like, oh, that really sucks. And Barnes possibly getting away with it by telling Taylor he's dead. You're like, oh, man, he's not going to know the truth. And then all of a sudden they're on the choppers and you just hear, I think Taylor screams, oh, fuck. Right. You're right. Absolutely. And like you said, too, when you see that shot from overhead and it's Elias running into the clearing and you're like, oh, my God, they got to go back and get him. And then you see all those VC and you're like, you know, there's no way they can go back and get him. But as a kid, you're always thinking they're somehow going to save him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one of the first experiences for me, you know, w- watching movies up to that point, the hero is always going to win. The, ho- the hero is always going to survive s- somehow. And you're like, oh, shit, this isn't going to happen. He's actually going to die. I think that's that's when the floodgates right. happened the first time I saw it because that's not something I was expecting as a, a young movie-going viewer. And it's effective. Even now as an adult, all these years later, part of me still wishes they could figure out a way to go get him. But realistically, you can't put everybody else at risk, even though he has such a presence with the platoon and he's so well-respected. But unfortunately sacrificed the one to save the rest but yeah it's it's still a tough scene it's still an amazing scene in a way too it's still it's a beautiful scene too though just the way it's shot Mm -hmm. and yeah beautifully shot you feel every bullet strike that elias is taking when that you're i mean you're you're almost feeling that with him too and that's the effect that oliver stone wanted to portray and yeah he certainly got me on that one a thousand percent thanks for just building upon this scene for us because uh, a few things. One, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the score here once again. Obviously, uh, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings is playing and it crescendos and escalates as Elias falls to his knees and it hits that high string note when his arms are extended up in the air. And without the music, it wouldn't be the same. So it's the match of the music to Defoe's performance and with, like you said, the actual uh, cinematography, because the, the one shot uh, from below, actually, of Elias looking upward and you see that chopper just fly right above him is really impressive. It's a very cool shot. It's heartbreaking. There's nothing they can do for him. And like you said, the fact that we've never seen anything quite like this, the way that this story is told, it's a great story device to have two characters that are so clearly defined and so clearly on the opposite sides of this war. I mean, between Elias and Barnes, I mean, they're very, very much black and white. And the fact that Barnes decides to take him out, to take Elias out, to shoot him almost point blank, it's scary unto itself, first of all, because of the setting. You can kill anybody in this jungle and get away with it. They can't, that can happen. And it did happen and that's the point is that there's no there's not going to be any real investigation what can they actually prove unless they do retrieve Elias's body 
but you can just get away with murder in the jungle. Like it's just a horrific location for these horrible acts to happen. And they did because what's anybody going to do about it? Anyway, uh, yeah, just some other thoughts there. But to have the story within the story, we have, the, like I mentioned, the Vietnam War, of course, but then these two characters tug at our own conscious, our conscience because it's the angel and the devil on our shoulders. It's the two sides going, well, they both have arguments here. They both have philosophies is how to treat the, your fellow human being and what the war means and how to, to be a soldier and how to act within this war and perform in this war. And uh, it's, they, they do not waver. I mean, they are very much, I mean, Defoe is just really compassionate. And that's what I love about Barnes is, you know, he's positioned as a bad guy, but there is, it's not that black and white, I think is what my point is inevitably here. It's just not. And that's the whole freaking issue with this, this war. It's just one giant gray area. It's just one giant gray area, and it's so confusing. But for Barnes and from Tom Berenger's performance, that perspective of just his performance, he really plays it as if he's justified in every action that he takes. He believes in everything that he does, and you believe it as an audience member. That's, uh, that's all I have for that, for now. Yeah, good stuff. So for me, for my final favorite scene, almost happens right after that, is they all get picked up by the chopper. They go back to the base. Like this platoon is literally split in half. So you have your Elias half and your Barnes half. And the ones that followed Elias are really bummed that he has died. And they unfortunately watched him die and couldn't do anything about it. But Taylor's pretty sure that Barnes set him up and tried to kill him. And he's trying to tell platoon that followed Elias that Barnes killed him. We need to kill Barnes right now. And as much as the platoon believes Taylor, they also believe they shouldn't kill Barnes. Not only shouldn't they kill Barnes, they don't even think they can kill Barnes because uh, one of them mentions that Barnes has been shot seven times already. He's like, the only person that's going to kill Barnes is Barnes. And Taylor's getting more frustrated because he thinks they just got to get rid of Barnes or else they're all screwed. Because he thinks if he killed Elias, he's going to kill the rest of us if we don't follow in line. And it gets to the point where Taylor gets so upset, he's about to leave the bunker. And sitting right there is Barnes. Oh, fuck. How much of this has he heard? And Barnes just comes strutting in. And he goes, talking about killing? Y'all experts? Y'all know about killing? Like to hear about it, potheads? And then uh, one of them has their pipe and he smokes on it. He's like, why do you smoke the shit? So to escape from reality, me, I don't need the shit. I am reality. There's the way it ought to be. And there's the way it is. Elias was full of shit. Elias was a crusader. Now I got no fight with any man who does what he's told. But when he don't, the machine breaks down. And when the machine breaks down, we break down. I ain't going to allow that in any of you. Not one He's like, you all love Elias? Oh, you want to kick my ass? Yeah, well, here I am, all by my lonesome. And ain't nobody gonna know. Six of you boys against me, kill me. Shit on all of you. And then Taylor attacks Barnes at that point because he's so enraged. And Barnes gets the upper hand right away and pulls out a little mini knife and holds it to Taylor's face. 
and you're like, oh shit, what's he going to do? And, you know, the rest of the platoon is like, you can't do that, Barnes. You can't do that. And he just slices Taylor on the cheek and walks out. And you're just like, oh, fuck. What's going to happen now? It's just that cockiness of Barnes. It's just so scary because he's right. He goes in there with six other people that do want to kill him because of what he did to Elias. But he also knows they can't do shit. And it's a good performance by Barringer. Tough stuff. So glad uh, you brought up the scene because this was my next scene, uh, my final favorite scene. It is my favorite scene of this film. And it only came to me, I think, in a more recent rewatch, maybe a decade ago or so. And it stays with me. Berenger deserves the top billing. As I mentioned, this is why. It's this monologue that he gives. He's amazing in this scene. Because he's playing a lot of different things, and it's all in his face. It's all in his eyes. He's sitting off to the side. I assume he's heard the entire conversation. They don't even know he's there, and he's just sipping from that Jack Daniels. He's just got that bottle, the full bottle of Jack. I mean, well, it's a whole bottle. It's half empty, but a whole bottle of Jack Daniels that he's just been sipping from, and he just keeps tugging at it gets up and starts walking around, and then he gets into his monologue. And you're right. He knows they can't do shit about it, but he also knows they won't do shit about it. He just commands. They're not going to fuck with Barnes. You don't fuck with a guy like that, because as Ra mentions, I think Ra being like short for Ramucci or Ranucci, played by Francesco Quinn, who's great in this, and he's yeah says he's been shot seven times. He ain't dead. He ain't meant to die. They're in, clearly intimidated by Barnes and for good reason. But just the line reading that Berenger gives is just so, so great because he's intimidating. He's half drunk. And when he gets to that point of saying, yeah, here I am all by my lonesome. Ain't nobody going to know six of you boys against me. He actually on, on the exhale says, kill me. He just like, kill me. Just do it. Bring it on. Like, I don't give a shit. You can try it. You'll fail because he knows. He knows they're not going to do shit, and they don't. You see the reaction from Ra. You see King's reaction as he turns away. And man, what a fantastic delivery by Berenger as he turns and then just turns right back around. It's like he's exasperated. He almost just, he just says, I shit on all of you. You have no idea. Like, you're nothing. You're so beneath me. You, you haven't seen shit. You haven't done shit. You don't know. You don't have any understanding of what this war is or what needs to be done. I do. I am reality. Like, it's... What a great fucking line. What a great delivery. And the fact then, Taylor does get the cojones to go after Barnes, and they do have that squabble. But of course, Barnes gets the best of him, and as you said, you know, slices his cheek with a small knife and then just walks off. He's just, he's sweating. He's dripping from the chin. He's still got the bottle in his hand, and he turns around one last time and says, Death... What do you all know about death? God damn, man. God damn. It's such a great scene. And he just, I'll just keep saying it over and over again. Berenger commands. He rules. He's the man in this movie. If you haven't seen it in a while, YouTube it. Watch this scene. Tom Berenger puts on a clinic and he's playing a lot of different levels and see if you can find them all within it because it's not just straightforward. There's this, there's a sadness within it. It's not just a ferociousness or a fierceness, but he is... I mean, firmly planted in his beliefs, no question, but he's seen too much and he knows too much and he's not afraid of anything. 
Excellent stuff from you. Um, there's just one other thing, a moment I just want to bring up before we move on. It has that horror film element, and it's when they come across the VC bunker and it looks abandoned, but there's clues that someone's been there recently, and the whole platoon goes oh, in yeah. to look. Scary as fuck. And the whole yeah. time, I'm just like, just get out of there. Please get out of there. You know there's a trap somewhere. You know there's a trap somewhere. And you had one of the platoon. I can't remember who the character was. And he's in the bunker and he's going through their stuff. And at first he's like super cautious because he knows there's a possibility that there's a a trap too. And he's slowly moving stuff around to make sure there's no kind of cords or wires. And then he finds the maps. He's like, oh man, I found all these maps. And you're just screaming at this. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Right. And he goes to pick them up all instead of just taking the maps out and grabbing them. he, He takes the container and goes to lift it. And it's booby-trapped, and he dies. So tense. So intense. So tense. It really, really, yeah. Uh, It's a great moment, and it's scary as hell. And this is what all leads up to the traumatic village scene, is all these things that happen here within this. Because, yeah, they come up on that abandoned VC bunker, and you just know it's got to be booby-trapped. It's clear that the VC had just been there because there's leftover, there's smoke rising from a recent pro- like campfire or such. And yeah, in that moment when you've got the two soldiers going through the maps and so- you just know something bad's going to happen. And one of those soldiers is Sal, played by none no, other yes. than Richard Edson, who is our uh, you know, I, which, he was he had to have been a hey, it's that Ferris actor. Bueller. I forget which. It w- yeah. Okay, it was then. Yeah, who, he's the one that jumps in the Ferrari with the other gentleman. You know, and the Star Wars theme is playing as they're joy riding around the Ferrari and around Chicago. Uh, great, great character actor. And he's nervous as all hell. He's chirping. Yeah, he's like, the other let's guy. just he's go. Just saying, oh, I got a bad feeling. Yeah, we got to let's go. Let's go. And sure enough, all, yep, tragedy strikes. That whole thing, man, is scary as hell when they come upon that abandoned bunker. Because we know the VC had just been there, but also there's the fear of, of the booby trap. And then on top of it, you've got badass Elias. Run through the tunnels. Going down into the tunnel with a flashlight and a pistol, mm-hmm. a dark tunnel, like anything could be waiting for you down there. Do you know the cojones, the freaking balls it would take to go into one of those tunnels on your own? Not me. No thanks, man. My God, man. It's so frightening. So frightening. Great stuff, man. I have two quick moments okay. I'm going to throw out there. Uh, right towards the end, after there's the final firefight sequence, which is just a giant shit show because the VC basically just really get the better of the entire platoon. And there's just so many of them. They know exactly where the platoon is. And they basically storm the entire area and slaughter most of the remaining platoon. And we get a moment where Barnes and Taylor uh, cross paths. And Barnes is losing his mind during the final battle, just slaughtering VC. And Taylor comes up to him, but Barnes is just in the midst of a frenzy. And he throws Taylor down and he has a shovel in his hand. He has a freaking shovel and he's about to kill Taylor. He's about to bash his head in with the shovel. He raises it above his head and you see, again, great cinematography, great composition of shot, everything where you get the red of the eyes. You get the red eyes of Barnes as at that very moment, an airstrike is coming in and the napalm is dropped and the explosions go off and that stops Barnes from killing Taylor because it just blows everybody away. 
But yeah, seeing the red of Barnes's eyes in that moment when he's in a pure state of rage and about to kill Taylor, and at the last moment, the napalm hits. It's uh, quite a moment. And then, of course, at the end, it's for me the sh- when Charlie Sheen, he gets on the chopper after he's been injured, and he gives the fist pump to Ra, who's standing in the distance, and he's not getting on the chopper. He has to stay, and Ra is kind of giving a war cry and beating his chest, and Sheen gets to go. He leaves. He's being hauled away on the chopper because he's injured. Two-timer. And he's a two-timer, and meaning he's been twice injured, yeah. right? And that means you get a ticket out of there. And he breaks down. He loses it. He just starts crying. It's getting ma- making me emotional right now because you hear his narration, which is very poignant and beautiful and poetic. But to me, just watching Charlie Sheen just start to cry you know, you think it's a, you know, a moment of elation. He's finally getting out of there, but it's like everything hits him all at once. Just the the terror and horror of war and the sense of loss. Yeah. I mean, most of the platoon has gotten wiped out at that point and there's maybe only a handful left, but he's probably never going to see the rest of that group ever again. Yeah. And what, again, the question being, you know, what is it all for? But what's really also impactful is that it's not just that he's breaking down, but we see from the audience perspective, it's just a fantastic aerial shot of these giant craters from the napalm and the craters are just filled with Mm -hmm. bodies. And that's what Charlie Sheen is looking down upon as he's losing it, as he is uh, breaking down. Good stuff. Tough stuff. Yeah. All right. Time for us to move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. So if it doesn't have any holes. We just file a complaint with the complaint department. I did not have a lot in this. This might be a, one of our quickest Swiss cheese and complaint department segments on this show. For sure. What do you have for Swiss cheese or complaints? Okay. They're very, they're not, one's not even really a complaint, but the first one is just, I, you know, there's a great scene between Taylor and King, King played by the wonderful Keith David. So, at this point, this is later in the film, and, and Taylor is just completely disillusioned, and he's stopped writing to his parents, or his grandmother, I should say. A lot of his narration throughout the film is is uh, kind of the voice of him as he's writing to his grandmother. So he stopped writing, and King is a little bit jazzed because he feels like he's about to get out of there. He doesn't. He only has a little time left, but you just see this blank stare on Taylor's face. And I realized in that moment, I would have even liked more development like of the friendship between Taylor and King. I thought they had good chemistry and they do have a couple good, you know, solid scenes earlier in the film, but it would have for me personally been a little more impactful when we do find out then in that very scene I'm talking about that King is going home. He's getting Mm -hmm. on the chopper and that for Taylor to watch this guy that he's bonded with and become friends with and gone through hell with able to leave and he has to stay like, like the scene works, it's impactful on a lot of different levels. But you know me, man. I'm always looking for more <laughs> relationship development, no matter what. And I understand probably why it wasn't there. It wasn't absolutely necessary or like we needed to feel more in this movie. But just to have Taylor, we know that Taylor bonds with Elias a little bit and or looks up to Elias. But uh, to have somebody else in his platoon that maybe he truly started connecting to and then either lost or in a way he does lose King because King actually leaves. But I don't know. That's just a mild, mild complaint. No, it's good too, because when you think about it, it really is King that 
is the first one to open his arms to Taylor and make him part of the platoon. Because yeah. it says at the beginning, when you're new, they don't give a rat's ass about you. They just figure fresh meat, you're just going to die. And then King and Taylor get put on latrine duty. And that's when mm -hmm. the two of them converse and become friends. And then King's like, hey, come right. come meet the rest of the, the crew. And that's when he kind of really gets to know Elias at that point, too. I mean, Elias has been nice to him since the get-go. But, you know, because of King saying, hey, he's a part of us. You know, Elias even now extends that olive branch out, too. And, yeah, you almost kind of forget about it, to be honest. That's really King's the one that's kind of steps up. No doubt about it. You know, again, Keith David, he's the man. And uh, he, yeah, brings him into that bunker where all the other guys are. And they're getting supremely high. They're all smoking, getting high. And you see Elias in the corner, like swinging yeah. on a hammock. And he does this kind of like wave, like, hey, he's all messed up. But yeah, like you said, extending the olive branch, he literally is extending a peace pipe in the form of a shotgun. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Like literally, literally shotgunning smoke. Mm -hmm. He cocks the shotgun, points it right at Charlie Sheen's face. And Charlie Sheen puts his mouth on the barrel and, and, uh, Elias blows the smoke into the chamber and Sheen sucks in the smoke and continues to get even more high. And it's there's some fun in that scene. You see the levity a little bit as these guys are taking a break. That's so scary. But that is the scene. You know, it is Keith David's character, King, that does bring Taylor into that. And that's where Taylor finally is kind of uh, earning his stripes a little bit. There's a little com more camaraderie here and he's getting a little more respect, I think, from the mm -hmm. other guys. Yeah, only because it was Charlie Sheen that was putting his mouth in that gun that I'm just like, all right, he's going to be okay. I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. I don't know how high you are. There's no way I'm sticking my mouth in this gun barrel. Yeah, no way. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was kind of, <laughs> nope. <laughs> what do you have for complaints? This is my only complaint I have. And it goes back to the Elias death scene because initially Taylor goes after Elias after he takes the wounded back to get taken care of. And then Barnes comes across him first. And Barnes is like, I'll go get Elias, go back to the church. And Taylor at first is like, no, I'll go with you. And Barnes is like, no, go. I wish Taylor knowing the situation, I wish he kind of stood up to Barnes a little bit more. And was like, I'll mm -hmm. go with you mm -hmm. or you go back. I will get Elias. Because you're starting to see Taylor turn the corner, especially in that firefight. It's just the fact that, you know, he basically saves uh, Lerner and Warren. Yeah. You got that rush. Go get Elias. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he unfortunately listened to the orders and took off. I was like, God damn it. You should have put up a bigger fight. Right. I thought the exact same thing, my friend. I thought the exact same thing as I was rewatching that scene and taking notes. I was like, oh, man, if he had just only gone back to look for Elias or... He knows that Barnes is no good, that he's just got a darkness within him and that he probably would take Elias out if he had the chance. And he did. And then, you know, you just want Taylor to do more heroic stuff. Right. And uh, I mean, he's already done heroic stuff. It's just you want him to do more, you know. And I think that's and you know that he's bonded with Elias and you're like, go get your your friend. You're like, that's your your hero now. That's the guy you look up to. Go save him. But. You know, he doesn't. And that's OK. That's the story. That's it. You know, and, and that uh, just explains why he's so much more pissed than the next scene, because I'm, I'm sure that's running through mm -hmm. his head. Fuck, I should have just went back. Right. Then he probably most likely would have been down there in the clearing right. with Defoe and they both would yep. have been killed. So, yeah, he's almost doubling down. 
So here's my my second and just it's not really a complaint. It's I'm actually just making a point. It's just it's interesting. You know, we watch over the years since for for you and I since the late 70s, early 80s and throughout choreography of action sequences in different films and all kinds of different action movies, whether they be action adventure, action uh, horror or comedy or war films, you know, so different directors handle action differently. And I think Stone handles it quite deftly in this film. But what's frustrating is when you watch action sequences and you don't know where characters are and that you don't have any bearing, it's disorienting the entire time. You're like, wait, who's where and behind what tree and what direction are they pointed in? And where's the gunfire coming from? And who's been hit? Who's injured? And who's in charge? Who's calling out the orders? And What's the plan? But that's the whole point. Is like for me watching it first time again, just the other day, it's frustrating because I'm like, I don't know what is going on. But that's the whole point, especially in this particular war where it is. It's just chaos. It's just chaos. You don't, you're not supposed to know. They don't know. Nobody knows. People are getting shot left and right and people are getting blown up left and right. It's really, really scary to be so disoriented. And uh, you it's effective the way it's shot, even though it might be annoying because I'm just constantly looking for my own bearings watching <laughs> those scenes. Yeah, and I think what was interesting for me watching it again, because now you recognize some of these actors and you've seen where their careers have gone. And now you're really like, mm-hmm. did he survive? Did he die? Did he make it? You know, it's Forrest Whitaker. Does he make it? What, what happened to Forrest? You know? So in that sense, it was more interesting because now you are even a little bit more connected. Oh, who made it through this and who didn't? So that was kind of interesting watching it this time because before I'm like, I didn't know who most of these actors were. A lot of them were introduced to me for the first time. And now going back and be like, oh, yeah, oh my, yeah, such and such. Oh, yeah, such and such. Oh, he died right there in the early. Wow, crazy. Yeah. That's all I had for complaints. I got nothing else, man. Nope, I am done myself. So let's move on to, hey, it's an actor. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's an actor. Who do we choose this week, Jason? Well, Bill Band, for this week's, hey, it's that actor, we chose Tony Todd. Yeah, Tony Todd, who played Sergeant Warren. Heck yeah. This was Todd's first theatrical movie released in the United States, but not his first movie. That would be Sleepwalk, directed by Sarah Driver and premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in May of 86. The movie also starred Steve Buscemi in one of his early roles. Tony Todd was born in Washington, D.C. in 1954. He studied theater at the Eugene O'Neill National Actors Theater Institute and the Trinity Repertory Company in Rhode Island. Other 80s movies that Tony starred in included Colors, Bird, and Lean on Me. Tony's career really took off, however, in the 90s with the title role of Daniel Robitaille in The Candyman. The Candyman. Oh, yeah. Heck yeah, man. Uh. Cabrini Green, Chicago. Don't say it. What is it? Five times looking in the mirror. That was like the tall tale and you're not supposed to do it, but they do it. And then he shows up and it's the bees coming out of the mouth. Very freaky. Tony Todd. Uh, So, yes, he starred in the Candyman series and he was Ben in the remake of The Night of the Living Dead. 
Other 90s movies included The Crow, The Rock, and Wishmaster. Todd had a recurring role in the Final Destination franchise as William Bloodworth. But for all our Star Trek fans out there, Tony Todd was mostly known as the Klingon Kern in multiple episodes of both Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Tony is still actively working today in movies, television, and voice acting. Tony Todd is this week's Hey, It's That Actor. God, he has such a great voice. I would say for me, if you said Tony Todd, I think the first movie that goes in my head is a crow. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Tony Todd, though. Yeah, for me, it's still it's Candyman, Man. though. It's it's always Candyman. Yeah. But uh, I do have a funny story, if you'll indulge me, uh, relating to Tony Todd. I've never met the man, but uh, I will tell you exactly how close I got to meeting Tony Todd was I used to frequent an establishment on Cherokee Avenue in Hollywood called Bordner's. Uh, many in Los Angeles area will be familiar with that particular bar. And I became friendly with one of the bartenders, one of the female bartenders that worked there. And I asked her out and we went on a date at a bar in Glendale. And I then shortly found out that uh, she had uh, been recently dating Tony Todd. Oh. <laughs> I found that very intimidating, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, you know what? Um, yeah, I just don't think this is going to work out. I think you're really sweet. I think you're really nice. But uh, I don't want Candyman coming there after my go. ass. Uh, not that uh, it wasn't even that close. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, having a little fun with it. But I remember that. I specifically remember that. Can you introduce me? I'd love to yeah. meet Tony Todd. <laughs> Oh my right. God, that's cool. But needless, uh, well, I'll just say this much. It did not work out. Uh, that date ended early for other reasons, but she was really, really nice. Very attractive, very cool, but it just uh, didn't work out. All's well that ends well. And I didn't get to meet Tony Todd, unfortunately. So let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Platoon? Well, let's start with this. Stone wrote the screenplay based on his experiences as a U.S. infantryman in Vietnam to counter the vision of the war portrayed in John Wayne's The Green Berets. Although having written films such as Midnight Express and Scarface, Stone struggled to get the film developed until Hemdale Film Corporation acquired the project along with Salvador. Filming took place in the Philippines in February 1986 and lasted 54 days. Platoon was the first Hollywood film to be written and directed by a veteran of the Vietnam War. All right. Um, so Charlie Sheen, one our lead actors, almost lost the lead role to his own brother. So Sheen had initially auditioned for Stone earlier when the movie was trying to get made, but Stone wasn't that impressed with him. The actor Stone had won it was Sheen's older brother, Emilio Estevez. But unfortunately, the financing fell through. And by the time they got the financing again... Sheen auditioned again a couple of years later and had grown up and become more mature. And at that point, Stone knew now Charlie Sheen is the man for this role and then was cast at that point. Wow. Very cool. Here's some more casting trivia. According to Oliver Stone, he intentionally cast Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe against type. Berenger was mostly famous for playing good guys, while Dafoe had primarily played villains up until then. Both men received Oscar nominations for their work. When I had read that myself, I didn't think about it because to me, that was really my first introduction to both of those actors. But now going back mm -hmm. and, you know, we did To Live and Die in LA, who was the bad guy, Willem Dafoe. Right. And then you have, uh, what was it? Wrestlers 
Rhapsody with Tom Berenger, where he's supposed to play like that kooky cowboy, mm-hmm. that movie totally bomb. He's supposed to be a good guy. I was like, oh, yeah. And see, to me, I always thought Berenger should be a bad guy and Defoe should always be a good guy. And then they kind of went back to the role reversal where Berenger mostly played good guys after that. So that was kind of funny. Yeah, I just think of Major League. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's the romantic leading man. Um, So the cast spent two weeks in a simulated boot camp. The actors were put through the closest thing to a real boot camp that they could handle without killing them. They spent two weeks as soldiers in the Philippine jungle, digging holes to live in, eating from ration cans, carrying real weight, and staying in character. There were no showers, no toilets, and everyone had to rotate on night watch. And they started filming literally after camp ended. So Oliver Stone can have the actors feel what it's like to live in those conditions. Oliver Stone, man. Pretty yes. intense. That's great stuff. And uh, speaking of which, I'd mentioned earlier that I'm a big fan of John C. McGinley. Absolutely. He's worked on at least six Oliver Stone films. And he's told some great, great stories from working with Oliver Stone. And you can look them up. They're very easy to find. Just Google it. And I happened to come upon an interview with uh, Rich Eisen on the Rich Eisen show. And John C. McGinley, by the way, is extremely charismatic, super cool in interviews and tells it like it is. He's a great storyteller. So I'm going to just relay most of what he said in this interview. I will do it quickly. But he described Oliver Stone, uh, and this is particularly pertaining to Platoon, that shoot. He described Oliver Stone as a thoroughbred with blinders on and that he was the smartest guy in the room without question. So in describing him as a thoroughbred with blinders on, he meant if you could get inside the blinders and work within Stone's vision, his creative vision, it was absolute nirvana. But if you were working outside of those blinders or outside of that creative vision, it was absolute hell. They shot Platoon in chronological order in the Philippines, and when someone's character died, that actor left which provided some realism for the actors. So this is what McKinley is describing. is like every time a character died, that actor would leave. And so you actually felt their loss. So a lot of the time, they're they're not acting. So towards the end of the film, when there's just less of the platoon remaining, and you see these expressions of loss on the faces of these actors, that's, I mean, it's just, it's real. It's great stuff. And at the same time, he was talking about the threat. There was an actual threat of a military coup in the Philippines while they were filming. And that clearly American actors would be valuable prisoners if they were to be taken. So again, realism, the fear you see in their eyes is also real. And then he finally talks about when coming home that actually Top Gun had been released. And of course, is a completely different military film and how huge it was and how the audience was coming out and all the recruitment that was happening as a result. And that. <laughs> Oliver Stone decides to release Platoon at Christmas because nothing says Christmas like Platoon. <laughs> but uh, and it's great, man. Look it up. McGinley on the Rich Eisen show telling this story because his delivery is impeccable. But of course, then he says, well, and then Platoon did what it did, which is it made history. You know, So there you go. Some great, great stuff from the mouth of, the, of a man that was there. John C. McGinley. It's funny that you mentioned Top Gun because uh, so the U.S. Department of Defense declined to help in the making of the film due to its unglamorous depiction of the U.S. military. 
So the equipment had to be borrowed or bought from other sources, including the Philippine military. The film even used an actual RPG launch and explosion during filming. In contrast, Top Gun, which was also released in 1986, we just mentioned, with a budget more than twice a platoon, had support from the Department of Defense. And we know why, because recruitment skyrocketed after that film was released. Whereas if you watch Platoon, yeah, I'm not signing up anytime soon. Nope. Good stuff. I don't know. I hadn't heard this before, but according to IMDb, military advisor Dale Dye, who I believe plays Captain Harris in the film, plays a lot of military roles in different films. Uh, Dale Dye, he witnessed Oliver Stone suffer an attack of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, on set while filming the village scene. He claimed that they had a good cry together afterwards based on their mutual experience in Vietnam. I totally believe it. If that's true, that's pretty That's pretty rough. Even look at some of the facts during the filming. How just, you know, like I said, you're coming from a two-week boot camp. I mean, they're literally starting filming the next day because Stone wanted the actors to feel like what it was to go through the rigors of being over there in the war. So everyone's just tired, exhausted, filming in the jungle, a lot of stuff you read that at some point, every actor wanted to kill Stone at some point. But after the mm-hmm. film was over, they had nothing but praise for him because they understood what he was doing. So you saying that story, I, I totally believe 100 percent. Yeah, sure. Um, that's all I had, Jim. Anything else for facts and trivia? No, no, I think we can cut it off there. Uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, there is a lot of research that you can find on this film. So. We recommend that you do. There's a lot of a lot of great facts and trivia out there. You can find it. All right, so let's move on to box office. So Platoon was released on December 19th, 1986, in limited release. On an estimated budget of $6 million, it grossed $138 million domestically. It became the number one movie at the box office on January 30th, 1987, before it went into wide release. It would stay in the top spot for another three weeks and would stay in the top 10 for another 16 weeks after that. Platoon would be the third highest grossing movie domestically released in 1986 and would be the second highest grossing movie for Orion Pictures behind Dances with Wolves. Wow. So then moving on to reviews, when growing up in the mid 80s, we'd watch at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Platoon was unanimous. Two big, big thumbs up. Roger called it a great movie, a powerful movie, and one of the year's best. Gene thought, not condoning the conduct of the situations or soldiers, applauded that the movie helped the audience understand the circumstances these soldiers were under during the Vietnam War. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 89%. And it has an IMDb rating of 8.1. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Platoon? Uh, I just have a real quick additional thought about a couple actors that I'll bring up again here. Uh, Kevin Dillon and Francesco Quinn. I think they shine in this movie as well. Uh, it's a stellar cast. I mean, we've mentioned everything, every one, I should say, from... Keith David to Forrest Whitaker to, I mean, Johnny yeah, John Depp, Depp even is solid and he had a very, very small role, but he's very good. But Kevin Dillon, man, like, should he have been more of a thing in the 80s? I'm surprised. He's a pretty solid yeah. actor. He's really good in this. 
you really hate him. And he has a substantial role. You would think this would have been like a platformer jumping off point for him in his career. Uh, it's not that he didn't do well. I mean, he has a great career. Kevin Dillon's done quite well for himself, but it's just, I don't know the inner workings of the traje- trajectory of, of Kevin Dillon's career or, you know, but uh, there's so many things that happen along the way. But anyway, I just think he's good in the movie. And and the other one, again, be, yeah, for uh, Francesco or Francesco, Quinn, who plays Ra, and he has that raspy voice the whole time. He's just got a great look and... I think he's he has a really substantial he role does. in this. And I couldn't think of anything else he was in. Well, he happens to be the son of Oscar-winning actor Anthony Quinn. And yeah, I was looking at his IMDb. He did a lot of small roles, a lot of TV work, and has done a ton of voice work. He's still mm-hmm. working. A lot of voice work, especially like video games and such. So he's still working. But yeah, he was in an episode of Miami Vice. That's right. An episode called God's Work playing the role of Francesco Cruz in 1987. So shout out to those actors and all the supporting cast in this film. Cool. I mean, outside of Platoon, do you have a favorite war movie? That was my, well, oh, okay. War yeah, movie. Yeah, I was going to say Vietnam. Uh, I have, yeah, yeah. I was going to go with uh, my question. I thought you were going to ask, but I'll save that for next. And I have to go with Apocalypse Now. That's my other, from a, a you know, a filmmaking perspective, that's probably it. I have immense respect for the other. There's so, there's a lot of great war films out there for different reasons. But yeah, the, that one is the one that's, it's kind of one, the ranking, you know, one, one A mm-hmm. for me between Platoon and Apocalypse Now. Probably those are the two I've, I've seen the most, I would have okay. to say. How about yourself? Usually if they deal with submarines, I'm all in. That's me. You know, so maybe like Das Boot. Aha. Sure. Or even like U five seventy one with Matthew McConaughey. It's not. It's not a great oh, movie. Oh yeah, but I just sure. I don't know. And any of the war movies that take place in submarines, I'm all. I could watch those all day. There's not very many war movies that I watch over and over again. From here to eternity, that's another good one. A Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, that might be up there. Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. Guy Alec Guinness. Yeah, and I mean one we have to mention is uh, Kubrick, Full Metal Jacket. That's uh, one that's often mentioned in the in the right that's yeah that's one we'll do at some point in a future episode yeah but my question for you Mm -hmm. bill bant was what's your favorite oliver stone film or directed film i should say okay trying to go through real quick uh so wall street this natural born killers jfk it might be this one what am i missing uh well speaking of other war movies i mean did you mention uh yeah born on the fourth of july talk radio the doors any given sunday no yeah going back to this one Okay, there you go. I, yeah, for me, I think my favorite Oliver Stone film is Wall Street. That's the one I've seen the most. I love I love that movie. I've watched it so much. It's just great. Another Charlie Sheen yeah. vehicle. And definitely want to give a little shout out to Talk Radio. That's one I haven't seen in a long time. Eric Bogosian, man. Yeah, I do remember liking that one. Yeah, that hit me hard. Bogosian's fantastic in it. That's not necessarily like a rewatchable. That's true. Yeah, my last question. Platoon is considered the first in the Oliver Stone Vietnam trilogy, the second being Born on the Fourth of July, and the third is Heaven and Earth. I've never seen it. Have you seen Heaven and Earth? No, I have not seen that one. But I'm curious now to just see it to say I've completed the Oliver Stone Vietnam mm-hmm. trilogy, be a completist. Yeah, I was curious as to whether or not you'd seen it. I think I've only seen Born on the Fourth of July one time. I think that was at school. 
Yeah, that one rounds out his 80s career, yeah. man. Stone has a an amazing 80s run. Yeah, between but what he's I, written I've seen, and that's, what he directed, yeah. And directed. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else. Yeah, that's it for me, man, on that. All right, so with that being said, let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five grenades, what do you give Platoon? Uh, this is tough because I'm looking at my the score that I wrote. But after doing this podcast, man, I'm just going to go ahead and give this uh, five grenades. I'm going to do it. Can't make a comment on the accuracy of the wars portrayed in the film. I can just go based on what I've read. And a lot of veterans say that it is the most accurate portrayal they've seen. And then there are plenty of those that take some umbrage with the dramatized version of it. And there have been, there's been some commentary on the characterization of the African-American characters in this film or lack thereof, the African-Americans not being featured as officers in this film and such. You can find that in the research as well. But for the most part, uh, it is, it seems from the little I know or what I know that it is pretty well respected by veterans in general. And I can confidently say this is excellent filmmaking filled with great performances and I'm emotionally affected every time I see it. The story works and the horrors of war are presented in a way that makes me ask questions and think about my own humanity at its core. It's still extremely effective. The film is a gut punch and uh, I don't under, you know entirely understand the soldier's experience. And although I may always have questions about the, the, you know, the why of it all, war is the reality. And like Barnes said, you know, there's the way it ought to be and there's the way it is. And this film makes me appreciative and, and grateful for all of the servicemen and women that have put their lives on the line for our country. And that's pretty much it. Platoon is a, a powerful movie. So five grenades for me. Um, I went four and a half. I think the, you described it best with two words, movies of gut punch. And it really does make you appreciate the sacrifices people have made for us to give us our freedom and they're just not appreciated enough for what they do, even though technically we're not in war right now, but the fact that they're out there ready to go to defend us in an instant, if we need to be, that's a lot to ask for people. And the fact that people can step up and do it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for saying that Bill Bantwell said, and uh, war is happening in our world at this very moment. It's sad, it's, but it is, it is the reality. Mm-hmm. So, With that, um, I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. And if you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. Join us next week as we'll be discussing the sci-fi classic Tron starring Jeff Bridges. Hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. I think now, looking back, we did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves, and the enemy was in us. The war is over for me now, but it will always be there the rest of my days. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.